Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. So, Corey, please tell us about yourself because we have quite a story to get through today. Yeah, uh, about myself. Yeah. So just in terms of my <laughs> in terms of my sort of publishing journey, I can tell you that I started out in college as a theater major and realized that I didn't want the life of a theater major very pretty quickly. But I loved the idea of being creative. I just wanted to also be able to raise a family someday. And so I did a lot of searching, and um, I had this amazing professor in college uh, named Reeves Collins who taught a creative drama and children's theater and storytelling and all these 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 softer and different alternate approaches to creativity. And I got him, I convinced him in my senior year to let me write a children's book for college credit. And, and that happened because I was on vacation with my cousins and I had one who was two and a half, who's now 27. But at the time he was two and a half and I was reading him a book. And at the end of the book, the two characters were staring at the Northern Lights. And he pointed at the picture and said, is that the Aurora Borealis? And, and I was so flabbergasted by how this little, this little thing had had seen this this picture and it inspired him to learn and he will always know what the aurora borealis is he'll forget why he knows but he'll always know it and, and how amazing if i could do that someday and so I wrote this book for college credit and um, we, we turned it in in May of 1999. And I then spent the next 10 to 12 years waiting for agents or editors to randomly call me and ask if they would publish my book. You know, like I, that I is how the, it works, the, so. <laughs> the idea of sending it out was so terrifying because I'd put so much into it. And oh God, like to get rejection would be heartbreaking. And every once in a while, every two or three years, I would go buy the writer's handbook. There was some book that used to sell in Barnes and Noble every year. And I would look at the back, find a couple agents and send it out and then feel so accomplished that I had done that when I had done nothing, right? We all know that. But, um, and I think, I think I was arrogant enough to think that the, I was better than the system that, you know, all the things that they say you're supposed to do. Well, I, I mean, I don't need to do and um, after I wrote my second book, uh, and then I, I kind of realized that it's, that's it's just not the way. I'm not better than the system, and I and I dug all the way into it. So I that's when I joined SCBWI. That's when I joined a critique group. That's when I really ramped up my writing and and went to the conventions and met agents and 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 tried to get the feedback. I think we all know as writers, right, that in those early days, the hardest thing to get is for someone to read your book with intention. You know, not not your friends who be like, oh, it's great, which is not helpful and not uh, people who are overly critical but don't know the, the industry, but people who really know. And so I think I told you, Julie, I was really skeptical about joining SCBWI at first because I am skeptical of any industry that looks like it's trying to make money on your dream. And I say, I mean, this this will come full circle because I know that there are schools out there where you can pay $2,000 to take an acting for the camera course taught by people who don't have any experience doing that. And they're definitely trying to prey on these people who think, oh man, I'll get a job and I'll get, I'll become a TV star. I'll be on the next Disney hit. And so I, I felt like SCBWI has come to this convention and then pay to have an agent look at your book for 10 minutes. And I'm like, I'm hesitant, but I can't speak for 
writers' conventions writ large, but I can speak for the children's book writers community and say that I have never encountered a more supportive group. And to say that it feels like everyone wants everyone else to succeed and that there's no sense that that person succeeds at the cost to myself, I don't feel that. I never did, except for, you know, little petty jealousies when you watched people sort of <laughs> get further than you. <laughs> um, but it felt like I had a home and the first time I went and an agent said something nice about my work, it really, um, it really elevated me. So I, I feel like I want to tell the story that includes uh, someone on this call. So um, so I started to send out my books when I started to write more and more, and I felt like I was getting better. And I started sending it out to this, um, I feel like she was a newer agent at the time, I don't know, but her name was Jessica Sinchimer. And <laughs> And for about three or four times in a row, she would she would almost to the day, two months after I sent it, would send an email that said, I'm not gonna, I can't rep this book, but I do like your writing and send me the next one. And that was the really key sentence. And it was so consistent. She did it three or four times in a row that I wondered if it was just her standard rejection. So I went to a one day workshop in Boston a bunch of years ago, and uh, she was one of the agents that was going to be there. I should stop talking like you're not here, Jess. So you you were one of the agents that were there and we were, you were allowed to, again, you know, buy 10 minutes of their time to pitch a specific idea. So, so I, I, I got 10 minutes of Jessica's time and I, and I went in and, and I pitched her a couple ideas, but I also asked her specifically, like, is that what you say to everyone? And she said, no, I, I think you said you had several different rote responses for those things. And some of them were like, good luck. And some were more encouraging. And so, so it was very important. And, uh, and you, you asked me for two of my books at the time. So I went home and I pitched them. And, and by that summer, you were one of five or six agents who are all interested in my work at the same time. So sure was I that something was going to happen. And by November, they had all turned me down. And so I had decided I was going to abandon all submissions and I was going to focus only on writing. I only had one book left out. And once, once, and it was to you, Jessica, it was the book about the aliens who want you to smile or something. Remember, is it okay. And I was like, as soon as Jessica writes back and rejects me, then I can know that I am not close enough in my writing and, and I can really focus on that. And you so I'm, I'm going to stop you. <laughs> so, so just so I can get this straight, you are home, you are looking at Jessica, who you don't really know that well, as the person that's going to decide your fate. Oh, well, no, it, in that no case, like, everyone else had turned down everything. And so okay. it was the only thing that I had left, the only like right. tickle in the back of my throat of a possibility, <laughs> back of my brain. And so as soon as, as soon as she rejected it, then I could say, okay, there's nothing else out there. Now I can just clean slate, just go back to writing. And when Jessica finally wrote back two months, almost to the day, you said, um, <laughs> You said, uh, you know what? I do like this book. I'm going to take it to the team. And I'm like, oh no, what do I do with that? It was almost like counterproductive. I didn't know what to do. So, but I decided, so I, I looked up this uh, writer's retreat called Whispering Pines, right? Uh, run by Julia Kingsley. And, uh, and I got in, didn't realize that I was one of three men <laughs> to show up. Didn't realize that it was really just, um, is a very set community of women who normally went to that, to that event. And when I showed up in February, I walked in and someone said, oh, hey, Corey. And I was like, how did you know me? And they said, oh, the other two men are already here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and I went in and, and Jessica, you were one of the first people I ran into. And I think that was uh, the first time we met, not in that official, you were just doing that, you know, 10 minute thing. And I said, hi, I'm Corey Finkel. And you went, oh, Corey, I owe you an email. I, I've, I've been thinking about you and I wanted to talk to you about that book. And I was like, oh my God, I exist. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like in, in, at that time, you just feel so anonymous. Mm -hmm. And uh, two, two things happened there. And one was that I had had an offer of publication at the time from this tiny 
tiny, tiny little publishing house. And I couldn't, it felt like it was probably a bad decision, but I couldn't figure out how. And Jessica, you, if you remember, I mean, it's a long time ago, but you sat me down and in quite some detail explained to me what the disadvantages of doing that were. And it was my first real insider industry conversation. And I remember it very clearly. Just the, the time you took was it was real kindness. The other thing was, though, is that because the event was what it was, because it was, uh, I was one of three men and the, the population already existed in it, it felt a little bit more like they kind of wanted to rub shoulders with, with big wigs more than get down and dirty and right, which is what I thought it was going to be. I let down all of my guard. And so on the first meal, instead of worrying about who I should sit with, I just sat down in the first open seat. And the man I sat next to is one of the big VIPs of the event. He was uh, a senior editor at Simon & Schuster. Big deal. And so we started talking. I was pitching him ideas. Who cares? And at one point, we were both talking about how we thought about acting for a while, but didn't really want to do it. We both talked about how we went to acting schools. Turns out we went to college together and we graduated a year apart and we had 35 friends in common. I, I will often talk about the fact that every single writer, every one of us has a lucky break, whether it's nothing more than, you know, sending your book into a slush pile on the day that someone is willing to read it with the right frame of mind. That's a lucky break. I know, Julie, I remember your story about, you know, taking a course with someone who became a champion. That's, I mean, you're still doing the work and you're still earning it, but you got to have that lucky break, right? And mine was meeting Christian that day. And at the end of the weekend, he pulled me aside and said, send me your two best books, which was the scariest email I've ever sent in my life. Because before that, you're sending books into the ether to strangers who don't know you. When you send a manuscript to someone who wants to like it, and if they come back and don't, you are not as good as you thought you were, right? And so I sent it to him in almost three months to the day after that, he wrote back and said, I like this one book. I love the other one. Who's on your agent wish list? I'm like, agent wish list? What is that? Um, my agent wish just had one name on it and it was whoever would be willing to sign me you know so uh i gave him seven names and he wrote back and said i know three of them let me email them on your behalf oh. and i then um asked if i could write to a couple other people including jessica sinsheimer and then um jessica you and i i don't know if you remember we and i had a long phone call i remember i was picking up my daughter at the time i remember it so clearly and you talked about how you saw my career potentially unfolding and how maybe i could use my video um skills to to create multimedia projects and but you hesitated to sign me. And I think, I think you kind of said something like, I feel like maybe with all your skills, I'm not the right person, but you agreed to maybe, you agreed to maybe like, if I had a couple names I was choosing between that, you said I could call and you would sort of let me know what your thoughts of them were. And again, I just felt, I felt so cared for. It was so, it was so important. I just can't, I can't stress enough how important these, those conversations were. But sure enough, within three weeks of that conversation with Christian, I had three offers of representation and I had gone years and years and years with the closest I'd gotten was, was you, Jessica, saying you would take that one book to, to your team. And um, now, now to go that long and give you a short ending, I, I signed my contract for my first book deal almost 20 years to the day of turning in that book in college. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. This story is so amazing. So I want to bring our listeners back to the time of Whispering Pines. Sure. And so what's interesting, this is intersecting with our origin story. <laughs> our episode one of this very podcast is wow. about, has to do with this retreat. So if you go back to episode one, uh, when we talk about how we met, and how we decided to create and launch the Manuscript Academy. And so we are back in time. Corey is one of three men. I'm not sure, Corey, if you're one of them, but there was a, a box of anonymous questions. And one of the guys kept putting in 
I wonder if the guys are single. <laughs> like there was like this very funny rotating question that came up every you day. If I wrote those questions, I did not. Yes, but someone did. <laughs> and it was very funny. <laughs> it was always like, oh, I wonder if, I wonder if these guys are single, you know, and it was hysterical. So yeah, we were, it was the first year the Cameron Rosenblum and I were running this. Yeah. I had just met what Jessica and Kath, well, I met Catherine Sands on a bus and I, she brought me to Jessica. I brought Jessica to Whispering Pines where you met Jessica. And you. <laughs> right. And me. But I mean, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I'm just kind of amazed that the Jessica I knew, you know, all these years ago, and you do these things for writers, writers all the time now, Jessica, like, mm that you have always been the same person in this industry. And the fact that Corey, you know, was looking at you and you were giving him just enough positive news to keep going until the point that he signed with, you know, had three different offers and signed with Simon Schuster. Yeah. Well, the thing that's, the thing that is hard to explain about this, I guess, is that to me, that's just kind of my day to day. Like, you know, I'm not thinking like, oh, I'm going to be nice to a writer today. It's just more like someone asks if I think I can help them, I will. And it's almost automatic. So it's one of those things where it's like, I know that's not how everyone operates, but it's so very much like to me, the way water is to fish, I guess. It's like, it's just, it's just normal to me. So I don't, always think of it as something that's like unusual um it's it's (laughs) the the one thing that I find funny about this is that the two-month thing because I never thought I was that organized good job me um (laughs) (laughs) but yeah we were at this beautiful location where I remember there was just this sparkling water and I tried to go out and steal a kayak that's how gorgeous it was I was like I have to get out on this water and then of course I remembered I had a critique and put it back but um It was this gorgeous location. And I think that, you know, there's something so special about being in a place that is inspiring. And Julie, I just remember us being around the campfire and being like, this is amazing, but not everyone can afford this. And, you know, why are we not doing this online? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, Corey, the part of the part of the the story where we are all all humans and when we are together, you know, randomly sitting down at a table eating and just chatting, that's kind of when the magic sometimes happens. And I'm yeah. I'm so impressed that happened to you. So how did you feel when you sent that email? So the email, like, did you know your two best stories? Did you have a sense no. of which one was really going to appeal? How nervous were you? How did you prep for that? And you just tell us your process. Yeah. Well, so of course, what one thing I, I since I learned, I had learned before then, and I tell everyone now, I don't know if you, you both probably experienced this a thousand times, but once you get anywhere in the industry, anywhere, <clears throat> people come out of the woodworks, you know, Facebook friends who say, hey, how can I? And one of the first things you say is, you know, don't have written one book, especially if you're a children's book writer, because I never want once did an agent say, I like this book, let's go. It's always, what else do you have? Like they, they want to rep a career. And I know why now, because I know how long it takes and how much work my agent did with me to hone my writing before we even started pitching. But at the time, you know, I had written tons of books, but you know, who, who knows if they're any good, right? I had one that I that I knew, the one that the most agents had expressed interest in um, in, that, in that time before. So I knew I was going to send that one. And then I still think about this all the time, Julie, because 
I sent also the one the one that he said was good was one that I wrote like three or four months before. And I was like, this is pretty good. This is pretty clever. But I had just finished one. In fact, I wrote it at the Whispering Pines conference. Oh. I, I, I I wanted to, um, I really wanted to do writing. And so I, I I went to, and I had this idea and I like fleshed it all out uh, during this uh, period of time when Jess, Jessica, sorry, was probably trying to steal a kayak. But um, I, I really wanted to send that one. And to this day, it is the one that my wife likes the best. I, my agent does not think it can sell. When I was talking to Jessica, you said that if I signed with you, the first thing you would do is get that manuscript ready for submission. I'm even going to remind you, it was called Lucky Gold Coin. And it was about a kid who find a gold, found a gold coin on the ground and either was going to find out who it belonged to and return it, or he was going to steal it. And then the book then separated in two and you followed his path if he had kept it and then followed his path if he had returned it. And um, both kind of end up um, with him being wildly successful, but never seeing his family again. And so the price was too high and he didn't do anything, but he left it alone. And I wrote that entire thing. Anyway, that, that's to this day, I wish I had sent that to Christian as well, but he's out of the industry now. Nothing I can do. Well, I think it's so interesting too, that what you created when you were surrounded by creative people somehow turned into this beautiful thing that is now your wife's favorite. I think it's, it's really, it's almost as if we are absorbing these things all the time, depending on who's around us. And I think that's really cool that, you know, being around all of these, these folks inspired you. But um, yeah, and, and certainly that happens every time I go to a convention. I went this last one where I, I ran into Julie again. Um, I had been kind of blocked on a manuscript for months. I am trying so hard to break it. And I had a 10 minute conversation with someone that gave me an idea to pursue it. And then ultimately when I tried that and it still didn't quite work, I had the courage to put it down and start something new. And all that came from, as you say, just kind of just from the, the collective creative juice of, of being with a bunch of people like that. I would say as well, I just to add on to that, that I left that conference so we, we both were at the New England SCBWI conference and I left it and started, um, I was 150 pages in, into a work in progress and I started from scratch. So, so hard to do. Yeah. yeah. So, so good though. But it felt, it felt right. And I think like that's, and I think that it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's a conference. I mean, conf live conferences are wonderful. They're often, they're often exhausting. They're just like, you know, like oh, you yeah. leave and your brain is just kind of like, it's, it's an immersion, but I think it doesn't matter. It could be listening to this podcast. It could be yeah. going to your local library and sitting, you know, if you're writing for children, sitting in the children's room and just listening to children's voices. I really feel like there's so much you can do to tap into that creative energy that it's not one thing, but it's, it, but it's a conscious thing, right? You're there, you're open, you're, you're, you're soaking in all the people around you. And that's when the, your brain is activated. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you need to feed your brain stuff for your brain to figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh. That could be our new business. We could, we could like brain food, brain food for writers. Is the logo it's like a fish, a mega fish? <laughs> I often tell um, my my boss at my day job, or any boss I've ever had, actually, if you like the work that I produce and I produce it on time, please do not ever check on me at any particular minute of the day. Like I get the work done and I'm happy with it. I won't turn in bad work, but but I can't sit and force myself to create. And so I, I need time and I need to, as you said, let time for, for the creative ideas to come in. And sometimes that looks like something that you wouldn't necessarily approve of. But like, so, so again, if you like my work and my timeline, please give me my process. I think that's really important too, because I think it's when writers decide on a timeline that it's when they get themselves into trouble. Um, when they decide I'm going to sell this book in six months or I give up, or I'm going to write the perfect book in a year or give up, or even at a conference, 
I'm going to meet somebody at this conference who wants to work with me or I'm going to give up. And I think that is exactly the wrong energy because, I mean, not only does it make everybody uncomfortable if they can feel you have an agenda, but it also just makes it feel like, like you said, you know, creativity doesn't work that way. I think you can give yourself as as much um, creative input as you can, be around creative people, listen to creative podcasts, hopefully, hopefully this one, and get some of that too. But I don't think you can really decide that things are going to happen on any particular timeline ever. And if you do decide them, you're just trying to cram things into a schedule that likely will not work. You know, if you had done that, you would have gone with that first small publisher. Not that there's anything wrong with small publishers, but I think we both just felt like that was not the right thing for you to do. Um, And I'm glad I was there to give you all of that information. But if you had gone there and and been like, okay, well, here's my deadline. It's this or nothing. Everything would have been different. Maybe you would have been like your character wildly successful either way, but it might have been at too high a cost. I I can actually tell you um, one of the best slash hardest conversations I ever had with my agent was um, we had uh, we'd been working on several books and um, there's one we, we submitted it and a publisher came back and said I, I really love this book I just have a couple tweaks and then I'm going to take it to acquisitions and that turned into six months of rewrites after which she just decided to drop it it was devastating and then instead of then working on another manuscript that I had been writing over the years he wanted me to start completely over from scratch which is super hard to do, especially when I'd been that close, but I did. And, you know, four or five months into the process, I feel pretty good about it. I turned in the book and he sent back another round of changes. And I was, I was a little frustrated because I felt like, God, I, I, when, when can it be done? He used to talk about how, um, how uh, he, I would say hungry, but he said impatient. Yeah. He's how impatient I was like you're saying, Jessica. And, and I would say, listen, as soon as I get the first bite, I promise you I'll be the most patient person, but this is my lifelong dream and it's hard to be patient. So after this last round of changes, we got on the phone and I, and I said something or other that he misinterpreted and he thought I was expressing anger at him or something. And I wasn't, and he kind of was kind of threatening. He kind of said, you know, maybe we're not a good fit. And and I said, listen, listen, I, I don't think I'm not saying that we're not a good fit. What I'm trying to get you to understand is how hard it is to start over when you got that close. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but the gist of it was you are being an idiot right now. And what he meant was you are not at the beginning. And then he said, every manuscript you turn in, you have become a better writer. You're getting closer every single time. Every time we submit, even though we're not getting a sale. All of these editors are saying, I do like his writing though. Please send me what's next. I have a whole list of people who want to hear. Every time, you know, someone might recognize your name the next time. Everything is progress, even if it doesn't feel that way. Super important, right? And then when I tell that story, I then say the appendix is we did finish it. I then turned it in and one publisher came back and said, you know, I don't want this, but I do want a graduation book. Would Corey write that for me? And that became Your Future is Bright, which is the first book I did publish. And so it is all a journey, right? It's all part of a continuum. You just can't always see it. I need an agent. I think it's important to have an agent who's willing to tell you when you're being an idiot. Not in those (laughs) words, but I think it's important for the agent to be like, look, I see the big picture here. You can't get up right now because you're so close and it's so hard for writers to see the progress they're making sometimes when they're in it you need someone who's willing to fight that fight for you with you well i think so many writers have raw talent and i think that's it sounds like that's what you've always had it's just raw talent and people keep saying to you you know that that, like your lesson like there's lessons in all of this there's patience there's persistence or perseverance but like the, people keep saying the same thing to you Corey and now you've done it 
like you tell us about your book that's coming out. Okay, yeah, it came out earlier this month. Okay. It's called Pop's Perfect Present. And what's really what's really fun is that, you know, it's not my first book. So the first book was called Your Future is Bright. But if you remember anything about my work, Jessica, you'll remember that I tend to put a lot of plot. I, I really love story. I really love concept. And Your Future is Bright isn't that much of a plot. It's 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 more of a, a an ode to children and accomplishment. It's 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 sweet. It's not a story so much. But this one, um, the next book I wrote after that one, we turned it in and and the same publisher, and they said, ah, this doesn't feel like a worthy follow-up to your future is bright. I'd love to see what Corey would do with a Father's Day concept, though. And um, I have two little kids, and and so so right away, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to have a kid trying to do something cool for their dad and to have it fail in every conceivable way from the kid's perspective? But that, I guess my personality type, according to uh, people who know these sorts of things, is I'm a pleaser, which means... If the people I love are having a great day, I'm having a great day. And when when I'm when I'm upset is when you know like the kids are bickering or whatever. So from my perspective, if if my children came to me just after your future is bright was published, one Saturday, my daughter came downstairs. This would put her at 2019, so like six years old. And she came down and said, Dad, can we write and illustrate a picture book this weekend? And I'm like, Yes, we can. And we came up with a little idea and we wrote it together. And then I we turned it into to my wife, who was our editor. You no, know, she was our agent. Who made suggestions and then we submitted it to my son who was our publisher and he made some suggestions and then god bless her she illustrated you know 16 you know in her five five and a half year old way she illustrated 16 illustrations and then we wrote it out and then i it cost me a bundle but we, we had them bound at kinko's or whatever and turned into a, into a book now i remember that as the greatest weekend ever you know who knows how what she saw you know if she thought it was any good or not but that that's my point right is that the, the effort of a child coming to you to do something that you love is is unbelievable so that 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 was the uh, the origin story of that book and uh, i remember i went on facebook to some friends like what are some things if you if, if your kid would do anything with you for the weekend what would you do and and i got a lot of fishing and i got a lot of baseball or watching the game and you know so I just kind of adapted it to, to what would work for for the rhyming structure that, that I work with mm-hmm. okay so let me uh recap and make sure I understood the story right so you meet Christian Christian introduces you to agents agents say yes you choose one of them then Christian leaves and your agent sends your work other places is that what happened no um Christian uh he actually is the one who bought the first two books but uh after he bought the second one I mean he and I had a long conversation where I was we were talking about my career talking about you know this one book that he turned down is only because I hadn't been launched yet but it would be great maybe as a third or fourth book and I pitched him that lucky gold coin concept and he loved that he definitely wanted to see that one and we had we had notions and then he left the industry and it has been it, you know it's, it's funny to say this but we're kind of back to square one a little bit um not I mean <laughs> in, in a very very gilded square one I guess but um you know I'm still trying to establish myself with other places now but he got you as far as he needed to so that yeah. now you have a real foothold. You have a track record. You have yeah. people who see you as a professional and a professional agent helping you get there. So 100%. And you know what? The feedback I'm getting on the second book is is really great. Like, I had, like for example, a cousin of mine just, just wrote to me the other day and he's like, I read your book, but we knew he would get it because he's my cousin. You know, he's got kids. We knew he'd read it to his daughter at some point, but he was kind of flabbergasted by how much he liked it. And uh, a colleague said that, that her daughter-in-law started to cry when she read it. I mean, that's, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I, I got a little, I got a little teared up when I was thinking about it because it brought me back to my, you know, my dad passed away three years ago and it brought me back to that time when we did have those days. And I think the book hits on every level 
when it comes to the feels. I loved it. I thought it was such a beautiful book. The illustrations are amazing. The illustrations are amazing. Well, thank you, Julie. You know, so just, I was yeah, a real quick, just yesterday or two days ago, whenever it was, I was, I took my daughter for a jog. She had tried to keep up with some runners at a 5k race. She's nine. And you know what happens if you try to run too fast, right? So at one mile in, she was, she felt like her lungs were going to explode. She was so upset. So I took her out. I was like, we're going to go at your pace. We're going to get there. And she did it. But when we're almost done, she said, dad, do you like running with me? And I was like, I, I love doing things with you. Pretty sure I published an entire book to tell the world that fact. And she just went, no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love that. I mean, I love that you have this physical manifestation of like proof of how you love that that you can point to forever yeah and yeah other parents yeah. are probably like look at that book like that yeah and I'll, I'll have that for years for her that if she says you know when she's 13 and says you don't love me i'm like mm -hmm. <laughs> look at the book well so and then well, your family publishing house can start doing ya novels exactly and, and right. that'll get really dark at your house <laughs> so <laughs> tell us what is like do you find that you write I mean, so I'm seeing a theme here, like a, a thematic, like your older brother, you know, life lessons. What are other themes do you think about when you're putting together your picture books? Excuse me. Well, okay. So years ago at a children's book, at an SCBWI convention, um, I took a course with a woman and she was talking about the emotional truth of a book. And she wrote this, this mathematical equation on the board, mathematical. It said, my book is about X, but it's really about Y. And she said, the X is the plot. It's the book jacket. It's, it's you know, but the Y, couple words, one short sentence at the most. And I, and I try to think about that all the time is, is what the emotional truth is. And, and boy, more often than not, if your book isn't working, it's either because you haven't found that yet, or sometimes you start to write a book because it's a funny concept or whatever. And, and the emotional truth just, there is not one. And then that book probably isn't going to see the light of day. Yeah. That's so, so true. And that's kind of like what I say to YA authors. You need your unique concept, but you also need the typical teen stuff, which is the emotional layer too. And I think yeah. that is true in most genres. There's a way of looking at it in terms of, you know, the concept, the thing that you pitch in an elevator. Yeah. But when we write our pitch letters, I think the most fun part is, yeah, it's technically a book about, you know, aliens, but it's really about belonging and community. Fitting you know, it. I think that's a really beautiful beautiful and gratifying thing to talk about. Yeah. And, and you know, when, when you've hit it too, it's yeah, funny. When you're, uh, when you're ready to pitch a book, that's usually when the edits are done. Yeah. Yeah. I sometimes, uh, and this is really, this is really grandiose and I apologize for this, but I, I I've come to look at writing a picture book manuscript specifically, you know, five to 700 words, right. As, as creating a sculpture, because in a novel, not every word needs to be perfect, perfect, right? Like it's just, just chapters have to work. Uh, arcs have to work. But with a picture book, every word has to be just right. And so I kind of look at it like the first the first draft is taking the the block of marble and putting it into a vague shape. And then you, I just go back and read it over and over again. Then you chip away, chip away. Well, that word isn't quite right. And then eventually I get to the point where when I can read the whole thing without cringing at any of the sentences, that's when I'll turn it into my agent. That takes some time. To, I used to read the picture books I liked out loud to my office. Um, as you can imagine, this made me very popular. Sometimes I would even stand up on a chair. Um, <laughs> but they are meant to be read out loud. And I feel like everyone needs to have that process that they have to determine 
if it just feels right on a creative level, whether it's a lack of cringe or it's just fun to say. Yeah, certainly I, I heard a friend of mine said that they had a picture book critique group where as a rule, when they turn in a manuscript, someone else reads it out loud to the group. And I feel like that's incredibly important. I, I remember years ago uh, working on a promo. So so it had nothing to do with children's book writing. Um, and we we're trying to write a rhyme, a little poem. And the woman that I was working with who did not have the experience that, that that I had, had written a line which was baffling in its rhythm and meter. I just I couldn't imagine why she thought it would work. And then when she read it out loud, I heard how she heard it in her head. So it made sense to me, but, but I, I had to explain to her why I didn't think it worked. And then we, we figured something else out. It's another, when I write in rhyme, ironically, the, the two books I have published are both rhyming manuscripts. I do not always write in rhyme. The one I'm working on now is not. But when I do, my philosophy is there's nothing that I hate more when reading a rhyming book to my kid is when I get tripped up and have to figure out what the music is now. You know, that suddenly we've changed meter, we've changed the pattern of it. So for me, I pick a pattern that I like, I pick a, a meter, and then every every line is the same. I, I want you to, to be able to, to be able to sing it at that point, almost a da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And then if you do that, I believe you can include vocabulary that might be a little more advanced. Because if you don't know how to say the word awry, for example, if you put it in a line, you know, half in the middle of the book where the, the line before it is the word lie, you figured it out. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's really cool. But um, yeah. I also it also I'm, I'm, I'm impacted by the first time I ever brought a manuscript to a, a critique, a professional critique, and it was a rhyming manuscript. And I remember that the editor was looking and she was writing the number 11 down the side of the page over and over again. Okay. And that was the number of syllables in the line. Yeah. And, and I had made sure that it was syllable perfect. And the fact that she noticed made me think perhaps incorrectly that that's what editors did. And now it's just my style. So that when people give me their rhyming manuscript to look at, I'm inevitably breaking it down in my mathematical way to see like right here, you have a nine syllable line where the stress is on the second syllable but right under that you have a an 11 syllable line where the stress is on the first one and then you go to the one where the stress is on the third and to me that's that's it's not tight in a way that my personal philosophy says you gotta fix yeah it's like you have to do something really smart like um who would have thought that picture books perhaps are sometimes an iambic pentameter and right. on the other hand you don't want to make the parent reading it feel dumb right they're the one who buys the book wants to feel good about it you know will accidentally throw it out the window if they're tired of reading that book 17 times that day. And it's funny that you have to put in so much effort to make it feel easy. Yes. Yeah. I also, mean, yeah, yeah. I, I do think not everyone goes around and, and counts syllables. I only do it if it feels like something's not quite right. I'm sure you're right. But it, it was funny that I found myself in a Twitter group of writers once and, and someone asked about rhyming for a picture book. And, and I, and I offered this advice that for me, I tend to be very militaristic almost about, about how I do this. And I tend to be really mathematical, really buttoned down. I want, I want every line to have the same number of syllables. And I wanted the stress at the same every time. And someone wrote back and was just horrified. It was so upset at me. How could you say this? Absolutely not. I asked my writing mentor and she said that she doesn't do that. And I'm like, okay, I have sold a couple books and that, that doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that she and her mentor are wrong, but it doesn't make me wrong either. You know? And so it was, it was a little more aggressive than I had done. I'd been anticipating. Well, there are so many rules, right? And yeah. then they get repeated so many times, people start to take them as, oh, this is the correct way. For right. example, rhyme is bad. Nobody buys rhyming picture books. Here in our Zoom, we have proof that that is not true. <laughs> Illustration notes are bad. You're insulting the illustrator. How dare you? Obviously, people use them too. I think there's some comfort in feeling like there are absolute rules, but there just aren't. And actually, I find it comforting that there aren't. Sure. I, I, I actually I use a basic 
baseball analogy for that. All the time I talk about if you want to learn how to swing a bat, you're going to learn the way everyone learns how to swing a bat, how to hold it, you know, when to swing it, all that stuff, when to move your leg. Then once you know, then you can develop your own style. Then, then, then you watch the major league players and you see how they each have incredibly interesting, quirky ways that they do this or that or waggle, you know, but you, you got to do it the right way first. And I think that's what those rules are. And then I definitely heard the the no illustration note rule. And it is comforting to to go to a convention, have someone say, no, no, don't ever do this. You're like, good, I know. Inevitably, once you start talking to agents and editors, you'll find that it's as individual as anything else. Some don't, some do. I, I also say that, so to me, the, the beginning writer, when you're first writing picture books, will write things like, he opened the window and gasped when he saw the giant monster with green skin and yellow polka dots and dripping, fang, you know, dripping fangs. Then when you get a little better, you'll write this. He opened the door and gasped. And then illustration note, he opens the window and sees a giant green monster with yellow polka dots and dripping fangs. And then when you sort of, figure it out a little bit more, you'll eventually get to the point where you'll write, he opened the door and gasped, right? And then you do like, unless, unless the monster has to be green with yellow polka dots for how how it ends, you can leave some space for the illustrator. And they could even add something like, hi, said the monster. Then you don't need the note at all, because then we know there's a monster there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's an even better point. Yeah. So in, in my first book, um, the book is is sort of tracking what, what a kid might be when they grow up based on who they are right now. And so there's a, there's a line where she says, um, not she, the, I don't know who the narrator is. So, so the narrator says, uh, something like your eyes and your ears are incredibly strong. No secret can ever stay hidden for long. So maybe you'll be a detective or spy discovering secrets as people walk by. In my mind, what I saw was a little kid um, either listening or or maybe just finding the Christmas presents somewhere in the house. And then in the next page, you would see that kid aged up wearing a trench coat, listening at like a cafe as you hear, see people in like evil trench coats sort of whispering to each other in the next table over. That's not a bad idea. In the illustration though, she has this two-page spread and she made this great big house structure. And at the far left of the page, you see a lost cat sign. And then over the course of the page, as you sort of travel with her, she has a, a, a magnifying glass and she tra- follows some cat prints up the stairs. And then at the end of the page, at the down, she is handing a cat back to someone who has lost it. And man, oh man, that is better, right? That's so much better. And that's the sort of stuff where you, you see that happen once and then you kind of understand what role illustration notes play at that point. Yeah, I remember one time... I- I was having lunch with an editor and she handed me a book, which is adorable. And one thing was that so much of the page space was the little girl on her own. And everyone was concerned about the optics of having a five-year-old not have any supervision. So the illustrator added a cat and somehow that made everybody feel better. And it was just a little illustration thing where it's this cute cat was always there observing, hanging out, helping the kid a little bit, but like just kind of just the presence of this cat made all of the adults in the room feel better. And I feel like that's such a big thing, right? The comfort of the adults in the room, especially in our country. We don't generally have books for kids where bad things happen. They're unsupervised, anything we wouldn't endorse for their day-to-day life. But that's another example of like how the illustration can change something. That is the discussion in the room among the editors. Yeah, that's such a good point. And even with my last book, the illustrator, uh, had it's sort of her work was so good that I had to change some of the words. I'd written just, you know, words that, that had detail the way I would have put it. So for example... 
in the book, she starts by making a picture for her dad. And the picture she decides is terrible, kind of crumples it up. And then at the end, she goes back to it. And so so the first thing is I wrote, I painted the two of us doing some stuff. And and then in the illustration, she is not using paint. She's not. And so every time I read it in, in the galley form, I just it didn't, it really rubbed me the wrong way. And so I, I proactively sort of wrote to the editor, hey, how do you feel about changing it to either I colored the two of us doing some stuff or I doodled the two of us doing some stuff? Because those two words both fit the, the rhyming structure, the meter. And so we, we picked a new one. And then at the end of the book, where she's now going to revisit it, I wrote, I added some scenes to that first piece of art. So in my mind, it was just a montage and she added a piece of the two of them fishing and a piece of the two of them cooking and a piece of the two of them singing. And that's not what the illustrator did. She had one picture, so it didn't fit either. And so I, I again, it's like, I love what you've done. Not that I have the power to tell her to change it, even if I wanted her to. But the line now reads, I added some flair to that first piece of art. So it is cool. And I didn't know this, just how collaborative that process can end up being. I love it all. So let's just go back. So we're talking, this has been a long story. So we're talking 20 years. <laughs> you've gone from being a big brother, you're still a big brother, to a dad. <laughs> um, you talked about not wanting to really participate in the writing committee to really truly participating. Yeah. So how have you seen the rating industry change in those 20 years? What have you learned from it? And what advice do you give to writers? The, the the industry, I mean, Jessica, you know this so much better than me, but I mean, it's changing so much all the time. And it is, I think it's important to realize that it is still run by humans. And what I mean is it feels when you're, when you're just trying to chip away at the ceiling above you, it feels like it's run by an algorithm that you can crack. And I don't think there is. And, and right now I, I've actually, I've noticed that humans who are, who are lovely, creative, empathetic people are sometimes over, um, they're guessing just like everyone else. And so I guess I've noticed that there, there are trends in the industry that come and go that I, and like, I don't think any trend is sustainable. This again, this is just hunches. So uh, one thing my wife always says to me is, man, I wish you'd try to write something to be really marketable. Like I wish you would go to Target and read all the books that they sell and then try to write a book like that. And I'm like, I, I mean, I get her, her heart is in the right place. Like she just wants us, you know, she wants, you know, us to be a household name, right? But but I, I don't think, the, I don't think the industry could possibly work that way. Like I think that, um, that you're going to try to write for a market that if, in the best case scenario, your book comes out two and a half years after you write it. And so the market has changed. And so the best I can do is write the way I want, which is kind of funny and kind of quirky with, with, with as much plot as I can get away with, with the emotional core, and then just trust that, that the market will develop for it. Here, here's a fun story. I wrote a book, the book, book that I had the fight with the agent about, as a matter of fact. This is my my first original original story, meaning the first one I started from scratch since I had signed with him. And I was so, so proud of it by the time it was done. Even though when we pitched it, one publisher said they liked it. The rest of them didn't know if it was marketable, okay? Now, it was called Night Owl, about an owl that wants to be a knight. If that title sounds familiar to you, it was recently uh, written by someone else who did an amazing job. Uh, Christopher Denise, and he won a call to that honor for it. And it's amazing. So, yeah. Now, his is different from mine. I would like to believe that you would have thought mine was amazing too, Julie. But um, I'm sure I would have. Thank you. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, I mean, I wouldn't have written it if, if I was just paying attention to the market. And it turns out someone else 
found a way to make it work and you don't know. So, uh, so what advice, I mean, the best advice I can give is, you know, write and keep writing and keep writing. And then, and then don't, don't buck the system, join a critique group and listen to them. You won't want to, you'll write a book that you think is really good. And you're going to get feedback that you will resist and really try not to not, not every piece of feedback is great, but um, most of it is, is better than, than you think it is. Uh, join uh, the SCBWI, go to conventions, find a tribe. It is really important to have people who have your back and to feel that. And and yeah, and even if you write a great book, unfortunately, ah, fortunately, unfortunately, that's only the beginning, right? Because especially if you're writing picture books, you you, you gotta have a you gotta have a roster, a library. Well, not everyone gets to have the feeling that someone has their back. A lot of people live places where there aren't any other writers that they right. know of. There might be some they don't know of. Well, not everyone has a critique group that is supportive and giving good advice, and they might not know whether they're giving good advice or they're just resisting. What can writers do to give themselves the sense that someone someday will have their back so they keep going? Well, I'll push back on you slightly. I mean, everything you said is true to a point, but the the first, re I mean, I, ha I had two critique groups at the time of the story that we were all telling. Uh, the first one was in person. You know, we live in a big enough city that, you know, we had four or five people that could meet up. But the other group I met entirely online. I joined that 12 by 12 group which is a picture book writing um, online community, which did cost money, but I feel like it probably isn't required to do what I did from there, which is I just kind of put a word out there that said, is there, does anyone else want to do this? And then, you know, we got four or five writers. I have subsequently met most of them, but at the time, not for years did I ever meet any of them face to face. And we set up our own ground rules. Ours were you could submit any Monday. And that was important because I feel like a lot of critique groups, you have to wait a month and then you got to wait your turn. And it could be three, four months where you get anyone to read your work. We decided that we wanted to know that we could always be no more than seven days away from getting someone to read your book and give you some notes on it. And so we established our community that lasted for several years. And I think there were five of us. One of them, one of them kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. I hope she's okay. Uh, three of us got published and the other is. I um, mean, yeah, I haven't talked to her in a long time, but I mean, she always wrote wonderful work. So I'm still hoping that she's close, you know, that's one. And then I feel like, cause I really want to address your, your question, Jessica, about community. Cause I think about, um, you know, Twitter, I don't want to talk about Twitter because it, it's a cesspool in so many ways, but it does have a lot of, um, the writer's community on Twitter is, can be really awesome. I, I made friends just randomly reaching out the day of a Twitter hashtag event saying, you know, I work in marketing. I'm pretty good at, uh, getting to the punch right away. So if you have a pitch and you want some help workshopping it, I, I'm willing to help you. And I met a couple of people who um, I met at the convention last month. And I feel like, you know, Tara Lazar has that blog about writing kids while raising them. And she does Story Storm. And every every day for a month, people are writing essays. And then there's hundreds of comments underneath. And I just feel like feel like people talk. I feel like there's, there's a way to get that. I know that I don't think I've ever said no if someone has asked me to take a look at something, if I can. It's different if it's a novel, of course. That's an entirely different thing. I don't know how people do it. But Julie, I don't know how you get feedback when you write 150 pages of a novel, I don't. But, um, you know, generally, you know, five, 600 word manuscripts, you can at least give impressions. And I don't know, I feel like I, I benefited from the community. And so I try to be a proactive member of one now. Is that, is, that, is that too highfalutin? Does that answer your question? Not at all. I mean, I think a lot about what people need emotionally to keep going creatively. Yeah. Um, do you have any other insights about on that topic, I guess? Like, how do, how do we keep writers feeling good so they can keep going? Yeah. So two years ago, whenever it was, I got to do my first unboxing video. 
which was really, really self-indulgent. But I did it specifically because for two years, my son kept saying, who did you dedicate the book to? And I was like, I'm not going to tell you. And I, you know, he went and became uh, an internet sleuth. Then he went on Amazon, you know, when the book was available for pre-order and you could look inside and he was hoping that the dedication page would be there. It was not. And so on the day the, of the unboxing video, which is right here on this couch, uh, I, I, you know, I had it and we ripped it open and we both had different agendas. I just wanted to hold the book in my hands. I had my name on it, which still gives me chills to think about. He wanted to rip it open and see that I had dedicated it to my wife and him and my daughter. And so because of that, I got to share it. And I basically said, I've spent the past 20 years wanting to have a published book. My son spent the past two years wanting to know who the first one was dedicated to. Today, we both got to have our wish fulfilled. I put that on Twitter. And for 24 hours, I was Twitter famous. And one woman wrote and said, wow, 20 years. Thank you so much for being an inspiration to those of us who are still slogging away. And so I then responded to her with, I really wanted to address the word slogging. And I gave her a longer version of the story I told you about the argument that I'd had with my agent about how it is all progress and how, I mean, the, the best example is if you look at the first manuscript you write, you have written after you've written your 10th manuscript, I feel pretty confident that you will be embarrassed at that first manuscript. And what that shows is that you are making progress. It doesn't always feel that way. Another writer once said to me that she and her husband knew that she'd be published one day when she started getting a higher class of rejection letter. Another reason, Jessica, why those, those initial emails that you sent me mattered is because I never forgot what she said. And, and here you were saying, please send me the next thing. That is a sense of progress because the first time you send out emails, you're not going to hear anything. Probably there's always exceptions or you might get form rejections. Someday you'll start to, the industry talks about champagne rejections, which really bothers me as a term. It bothers me because it's true and I don't want it to be true. But the fact is there are plenty of reasons for an agent to turn you down that has nothing to do with the quality of your work. Ooh, is that a hard lesson to learn? But it's true, right? And you can verify that, Jessica. And yet to have them say something that's, well, I really like this. It just isn't for me. That feels bad, but it is progress. Before we move on, how about the first person to email academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with champagne rejections in the subject line? I will go over 10 of your rejections and tell you what my interpretation of them oh, is. That's because awesome. so many people <laughs> look at rejections and think that they're forms when they're not, or think they're personal when they're not, or think that the agent is lying about their interest. And, it, you know, it's such a beautiful example that you thought that I didn't mean what I said. And now, now, looking back on it all, you can see that like when agents say they want to see more, they really, really do. Yeah. In fact, you had said to me at the time, oh, I'm trying to remember, because because you had liked that one book, remember, at the, the beginning of that story. And then when we were on the phone, you said something like, man, <clears throat> I really like this book and I like some of the other books. And I was just kind of just kind of waiting for one other thing. And maybe this was it. And boy, what an interesting thing to say. That, and it, for me, it was it was a verification of my belief over over that experience that agents want to rep a career and not just a manuscript. But also it really laid bare the fact that there are just a lot of reasons why an agent will say yes. That just doesn't have anything to do with the like. I mean, I think you liked me. I think you liked my work and I think you saw my potential, but for whatever reason, it wasn't right at that time. And, and so it's, it's, it's an important lesson to, to experience, even if it's hard at the time. There absolutely is a moment. I think it's when you're 95% there, which I believe you were, when we can 
see all of the potential. We can see that there's so much going right. We can't necessarily see anything that's wrong, but it's almost as if we are standing on a cliff with a parachute and we just need that thing that makes us trust that if we jump, it's going to be worth it. And sometimes we just need that last little bit of like, go for it. Maybe it's a hang glider. Maybe we'll just glide back down to earth and land in Publishing Valley. But there just is that moment of like, you're standing there, you're like, is this enough to go forward? I need that just like rush of energy momentum. Because if you just dive off a, a cliff hang gliding, bad things will happen. You've got to get a running start. You need that feeling of a running start. That's so well put. Yeah. We have never had a, a podcast where we've talked about an actual rejection between, you know, an agent and a writer in the same space. And I think it's so interesting, you know, and, and actually, actually I take that back because I think this did happen earlier in a podcast. Maybe it's not even out yet. Somebody thanked an agent in a book that she didn't represent because it was the, the Lisa Jeanette podcast, I think it was. So someone thanked a, an agent for a book she didn't represent, but she gave just enough to get to that next step. And I think- oh. The more we talk, it's almost like, like you know, that, that precipice, right? And I, I, and I love that because I've never heard champagne rejections no, before. Oh, champagne rejections? Oh, I've my goodness. I've never heard that before, but it makes a lot of sense. I, I, like, I see them as more as like, like the ice bucket challenge, <laughs> you know, where you have the ice bucket and you get the rejection and you put your head in the ice bucket and you leave it there screaming. Um, but champagne rejection seems like a much better and nicer way of looking at it. But it's interesting. And I think... You you, you see that on Twitter all the time. I'm going to give up. If, if, if I don't hear from this person, this is it. This is the last one, but it really shouldn't be. And it should just be just, it's, it's, it's a step in the journey. That's all it is. But I do understand why you want to give up. Like, so here's, here's the story. Please, please cut this if it's terrible. But um, years ago, I was uh, doing comedy. I do improv comedy. And I was doing private show. And so when you do a private show, uh, the person who organized it will hand you a paper with people who are in the show so that maybe you'll make jokes specific to them and include them in it. And one guy, we were told, had written three books of comedy. So we're like, oh, wow, I can't wait to include this guy in the show. And so I was emceeing it. And I was up there and I said, you know, now we need, we need Dave. Is Dave in the audience? And I hear someone go, yeah. And I said, all right, can you come up on stage? And he went, no. And I looked out. <laughs> And he was in a wheelchair and he was attached to an oxygen tank. So old, old, old man. So I was like, okay. Um, I went out and I, and I was able to incorporate him from the audience. That's fine. And then after the show, we're, we're greeting everyone as they come out. And he comes out and I said, oh, I'm so excited to meet you, Dave. I, they tell me that you wrote three books of comedy. Now, in order for this story to work, I want you to just keep in your heart right now how it makes you feel to think about meeting someone who had written three books of comedy and gauge how you feel as I tell you his response. He said, yeah, never published though. And yeah, you see like it went from being like admiration and and to, to like pity. And, and here's something else, just a truism of being a writer is that when you tell people that you're trying to be an author, that is interesting. And it is more interesting than talking about your day job or what club you belong to in the evenings, right? And so people will remember it more readily than they might remember where you were. So when you meet them a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a 10th time and a hundred time, they will always, the first time they'll say, where can I buy your book? And if you're pre-published, uh, that is a bummer of a question to answer. But then every subsequent time when they say, how's your writing going? And you say, um, still not, nothing has happened. 
it stings a little bit every single time, I think. And so you are tempted to never tell anyone that you want to be a writer, or you are tempted to give up so that you no longer have to field that question. Personally, I was fueled by that man in that story I just told you, in a good way, and then in a, in a bad way, and then in a good way. And in, in the bad way in that I didn't tell people for years that I was going to, that I wanted to be a writer, because I didn't want to have to answer that question anymore, because it is a bummer. But then at some point, right around the time that I started to really take this seriously, I made a point to tell everyone that when they said, what do you do? I said, well, I have two answers to that question. One, here's my job. And two, I'm also a writer of children's books. And I did that to make myself accountable to that dream. And it kept me driven because I knew that in doing that, people were going to ask me forever. How's it going? How's it going? Are you published yet? And I just I wanted to do everything I could to not be that guy. And one of the things I got to think is when it finally did happen, I can say, no matter what happens for the rest of my career, I never have to be that guy. Do you know what I mean? Like forever, I can yeah. say that this happened for me at least once. Yeah. What am I getting around to? I, I guess, I guess you're talking about giving up. And I guess, I guess the point is like, I don't, I don't really know what you mean by giving up because, because I gave up submitting for a while. But if you love writing, what, what does giving up mean? I, I mean, eventually you'll have another idea and what would be the harm in writing that idea down? And then you go to a convention and, and meet, meet a friend and maybe go to a, go to those one day events where you can pay. Well, it was not very much money to, to talk to you for 10 minutes, Jessica. I mean, it, you can get that feedback. And I, know, I guess I guess giving up, I do understand the sentiment, but it feels a little self-defeating when you love to write. That's why you write. And so even if you don't submit for a while, why would you stop doing something that you love? I don't know. Well, and I think a lot of the difficulty is being treated like you're not a person. Oh my God, yes. And I feel like if you get so many form letters that treat you as if you're not a person, you need to do something in your life, whether it's hang out with your friends and not talk about writing at all, or just do something that nourishes you or purposely have an actual conversation so you can get back to feeling like a person because it's really hard to be creative when you feel like no one's treating you like a person. And ironically, it's your humanity that's going to get you there. That's such a good point. Uh, a friend of mine said years ago that I think I might have ever said this. I'm sorry, but uh, the hardest thing in the industry is to get someone to read your book with intention. And yeah, not, not only do you encounter the form rejections and the invisible rejections, the, I had one agent when I was submitting would respond to every single thing and say, I'm interested, send me the full manuscript. I'll get back to you within 12 weeks and did that for everyone and every book. So the first time you get it, you think, Oh, Oh my God. And then, um, over three months later, I wrote back to this person and said, Hey, I'm still preparing, you know, just want, you know, I haven't, I haven't, I've still been working. And they said, Oh man, remind me what that book was. And then I, I wrote back and then 20 minutes later, they wrote back and rejected it, which is actually worse than just a rejection. I think mm. because that's someone hedging all bets, but yes, feeling, feeling like, well, this is one of the first things I said on this, on this podcast, right. Is that talking to you those couple times I did, I felt like I existed. And that was a, a novel thing at the early days. So think, think about, okay, here's something I talk about at home in, in life is that the word connection is really important. And the pandemic took a lot of that away from us. And for a long time, we all forgot how to get it and we all need it. And so certainly if you're married, the easiest way to get connection is with your spouse, right? Or if you have a kid, the easiest way is with your kid. And so you can kind of get stuck in a rut where you begin to depend on it all in one place. So I say this to say that as a writer, the easiest way to get that connected, to get validation or that, that sense of being a real person is if an editor or an agent were to write you and say, yes, your book is awesome. I'm going to sign it. That would solve it. It is just not always realistic to expect it. It will happen someday, but it's not to, to imagine it'll happen on any given day for any particular manuscript is 
is maybe more trying to hit the lottery than, but there are ways to get that connection in these smaller micro ways, which I think are not the same, but can add up to something that feels almost like the same. So in the case of like my marriage, when I realized at one point that I was depending on my wife for a hundred percent of all my connection post pandemic, like, oh, this is bad for both of us. And so so even though it's easiest if it's your wife, the person that you see every single day in your house, I could still then pursue talking to friends or, you know, phone calls with with family members or or, you know, online chats with with people who who share my sensibilities. That helps too. Not in the same way, but it adds up. And in the same way, yes, the day the the agent says I am going to sign you, it's so euphoric that your first reaction is to collapse. Like I was just became immediately exhausted from the absence of tension for years of that. Mm. But there are ways to get that in smaller doses. Your podcast I, I, is is one such way. Uh, so is um, so is the Twitter community, which does exist and it is supportive. Um, so is an online resource um, if if you can do that. These things do exist. I would also say that there are a lot of uh, authors. I would count myself as one of them. We all have websites and they all have email addresses attached to them. And people like to hear from people. People like to connect. I feel like. It's a very human thing to reach out to someone. And, and I bet if you did that 10 times to a kid-lit author, I'd be willing to bet you get a response seven or eight times of 10. You're going to get a lot of email, Corey. Please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just, one of the things, just so you know, what I wrote down that I haven't really thought about much that I want to explore a little bit is the accountability to a dream. That when you have a dream to do something, and how you frame yourself as a human around that dream and how you tell people you're doing it and how, you know, and I had a writing teacher once say this to me, when, when writing is your dream, there's also sacrifice. It, it might be time. It might, you know, with friends and family, it might be, you know, putting yourself out there so that you can get that rejection, which you talked about pulling back. But I think all the writers at home should be thinking of how we're you're holding yourself accountable to that dream. Really interesting concept that you just kind of threw out there that I'm really going to ponder. I'm going I'm to really take time to think about that and how I'm holding myself accountable and how at the Manuscript Academy, we're holding our members accountable. You know, it's, it's fascinating. And I think people who do hold themselves accountable get further. So I have a story. Scott Adams is the name of the guy who created Dilbert. Now, let's not talk about what has become of him, but but 20 years ago, he was just a cartoonist, right? And he had this story where he was not able to get into art school because the teachers felt that he was not a good artist. So he started writing 15 times a day in a notebook, I will become a successful cartoonist. And then he did. And then once he became a cartoonist, he started to write. I mean, this this might be apocryphal, but at the, I mean, I, 20 years ago, I remember this very clearly, that he started to write I will become the best-selling cartoonist in America. And soon after that, Bill Watterson and Gary Larson retired and Dilbert became the most popular comic strip in America. But here's the important part. does he Is he saying that if you write this 15 times a day, it will become true? No, absolutely not. But his point was, by writing something down 15 times a day, it solidified in your head what it is you want. And then he talks about it like this, that over the course of a day, we make a million micro decisions from where to get coffee, from which route to take to work, from where to have lunch, who to talk to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What to do with those 15 extra minutes. And it's oftentimes you have no idea or you just kind of let the wind take you. But if, if you solidify what it is you want, if you really focus in on it, over the course of time, you'll see like the direction that you move begins to take a shape toward what you want. And that thought has really shaped my behavior for 20 years. For a while, I was writing what it is I wanted to be for my career. And you know, I, that is my job title now, I will say. Um, but then as for this, 
yes, I started to tell people I was a children's book writer. And then in this case, you know, because I was running away from that, that old guy in the, in the oxygen tank who kind of had to like own his failed dream that people were still talking about, it, it did light a fire in me so that when I had those extra minutes or when that extra money, you know, I'd go to Whispering Pines or then I'd sit down and write that book, write that manuscript. And, and, you know, not for nothing, when I signed with my agent, I thought, great, let's start publishing books. And what it instead happened was he broke me down and built me back up again as a writer. And that took a couple of years, but when you're accountable to that dream, it, it it's it's just it's just part of the process. You only fail if you give up. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't always feel that way though. No. But you have to you have to see it all as as a trajectory. Well, I am so happy that everything worked out for you. I'm so happy you got that moment where your son got to see your unboxing and the dedication. I'm so happy that you got a great agent that you met, um, Christian. That all of this just worked out, and I'm just I'm pleased. And it's always nice to hear a story of a good person having good things happen. Thank you. And and same to both of you. I, your, your success is well warranted and couldn't happen to two better people. See, this is where if I was on Zoom with one of my friends, I'd do the little like heart thing. <laughs> you know, know. like <laughs> it just it all feels so warm. Like I just I, like going back to a spring pines, going back to, you know, those early days of us, Jessica, you and me, but also like where I was before. And it's just, it's fascinating. And it, it's, it's, we want nothing but good for writers. Like that's, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's our, it's my favorite thing. I love books. I love writers. I love the writing community. And this, this really, you've made my day, Corey. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you, you both made my day as well. You're welcome. Well, much continued success to you. So that your uh, inbox turns into something like in Miracle on 34th Street, when everyone's dumping all the mail on the judge's desk, where can people find you online? Okay. So yeah, I have my website is coreyfinkel.com. I do, there is an email address that goes to it, but it, it sort of links into my other e- inbox. I don't even know what it is, but it's on coreyfinkel.com. That would be the, the quickest way. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here, for showing up as a person, for showing that when you show up as a person, that's when the good things happen. I'm proud of that you. That is so true. For you. Thank you so much. It's so great to talk to you both. Much continued success. All right. Thank you, Corey. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.